Radio Mano Papachango. I come to you from the Mojave Desert where I spent the weekend uh, in in the van. Thanks to everybody who sent in uh, names for the van. Man, there are a lot of uh, crazy ones. I'll read them. Next time I do a Roma, I'll read them. I don't want to take up your time here. Um, but yeah, there's some really good ideas for the van. I'm leaning toward, I don't know if I'm going to have this as the name for the van because it's not really a name, but you know how on the front of buses... Uh, it lists the destination, you know, like it'll say Albuquerque or whatever, wherever the bus is going. Um, the magic bus driven by Ken Kesey and that crowd back in the sixties immortalized in the Tom Wolf book, electric Kool-Aid acid test, uh, which some of you may have read or heard about. Anyway, the front of the magic bus, uh, the destination placard said further which I always thought was funny. Where are you going? Further. Nice. Um, and so that gave me an idea um, to put on the front of my little van, Masaya, which is one of my favorite phrases in Spanish. It was a phrase that took me some time to to wrap my head around when I was learning Spanish. I remember being intrigued by it because what it, translates to directly is mas is more aya is there a key is here aya is there so literally it's more there where are you going more there there no more there so the best translation in english is beyond interesting because that's our destination isn't it that's where we're all going beyond beyond what everything man <laughs> everything so yeah so i don't think that'll be uh, i'll probably have another name for the the van i can't call it masaya but i think that's i, I got some stencils and some uh gold metallic spray paint so i'm going to uh get up there and spray paint masaya on the front of the van That'll be interesting because the only people who will really get it will either be people like you who listen to this podcast and have heard me explain it, or it'll be someone who both understands Spanish and is familiar with the merry, the merry pranksters and the magic bus and that whole scene in the 60s. So that'll be a special person who goes, ah, I get it. Uh, like, yeah, you and I are going to have a good chat. Uh, yeah, I also, uh, reserved the ULR, uh, Vanthropology and Vanthropologist.com because I'm thinking this, this tour, if it comes together the way I'm hoping it will, could end up being a regular thing and I could, uh, you know, set up a YouTube channel, uh, you know, the Vanthropologist and who knows, maybe it'll become a TV show and Discovery Channel will pick it up and then I'll be famous and rich and yeah probably not but uh 
Still, it's worth thinking about. I like the term vanthropology. Someone mentioned that on Twitter. I'm not giving you credit because I don't remember your name, and maybe it was a Twitter handle anyway, but thank you. If you're hearing this, thank you. Good idea. I uh, followed up on it. Okay, so uh, this week's guest is Daniel Pinchback. He's uh, an author. You may have heard of him. He's quite famous. He's written a whole slew of books. This guy uh, is prolific as fuck. Uh, His most recent book is called Breaking Open the Head. No, that's not his most recent book. It's just the first book that he mentions on his webpage. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, that's, uh, that was, that came out in 2002. In 2012, he wrote The Return of Quetzalcoatl, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, let's see, Notes from the Edge Times came out in 2010, and his most recent book, here it is, is called How Soon Is Now, and it just came out this year. He co-founded the web magazine Reality Sandwich and Evolver.net. And uh, he's involved with all sorts of interesting stuff. He's, his work appears in the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Rolling Stone, New York Times Book Review, Art Forum, Village Voice, Dazed and Confused, and many other publications. So he's a smart guy. He has a lot to say about the future. That's his thing. He's, he's interested, well, in the past, I guess. So he and I have uh, a lot in common there. We're both thinking about where things are going in light of where we've been. He was in uh, L.A. recently on a book tour, and uh, he came up and gave a talk at a house in, in Topanga, and we managed to get some time before his talk to sit out on the back veranda looking out at a beautiful Topanga late afternoon, early evening, uh, and uh, talk a bit about his life and his work and so on. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, as for me, I'm good. I'm... Uh, As I say, I just got back. I spent just one night in the Mojave Desert, uh, went out with Oliver and Cheryl, his wife. Oliver's the guy who was instrumental in in getting my van roadworthy Um, and uh, Yorks and Lanks Automotive. If you have a British car or any kind of car and you're in uh, L.A., San Fernando Valley, give them a call. Oliver's fantastic. Anyway, we went out and spent the night out in the desert with their dogs, let their dogs run around in the desert. They're they're very uh, kind people. They're kind to the point that they see their dogs getting restless and say, let's go take the dogs out to the desert so they can run like crazy all night. That's how kind they are. They, they go camping for their dogs. I won't tell you what kind of food they give their dogs, but it's uh, better than what uh, what I eat most of the time. Anyway, uh, that's it. I'm back in Topanga, and for the next six weeks or so, I'm going to be focused ruthlessly on Civilized to Death. I hope to have that finished, cleaned up, put together in uh, in the proper order. I've taken it apart with my friend Nomi. We've we've disassembled it and, and looked at like every little piece and like, okay, this belongs in this book. This belongs in the next book. This belongs who the fuck knows where. So we've got three piles of pieces of thinking and writing and so on. And now I'm uh, I'm going to be putting this back together and adding the transitions, the sort of mortar between the blocks. And uh, and I'm going to be doing uh, a new third section at the end of it that, that wasn't included in the original, which is about uh, people that are putting 
the sorts of things we learn by understanding prehistory that are that are using these things to uh, forge a better path into the future. So they're in the way they arrange their personal lives, in the way they raise their children, in architecture, in the way they look at work, uh, environmental things, sustainable agriculture, all this kind of stuff where people are looking at where we came from and using that as a template or as a a way to illuminate a better path into the future. So yes, I am managing to end Civilized to Death on an upbeat kind of uh, vibe, I believe, which is good. It should make everybody happy, including my publisher. And they deserve to be happy after being so patient and tolerant of my silliness over these years. Um, anyway, I've done, uh, I did a really good podcast. I, I'm very happy with the conversation I had the other day with uh, a guy named Kyle, is it Tierman? I think he's pronounced as Tierman. Um, he's a professional surfer. I uh, went out and met him in Malibu, and uh, he and watched him and Neil Strauss surfing. And uh, and then uh, we had a conversation. We ended up spending the whole day together and hung out till well into the wee hours. Uh, new friend, really cool guy, so I'll be bringing that to you soon. I've got a big backlog of, of wonderful podcasts, and I'm tempted to just like release you know five of them this week. Um, but since I want to work on the book, I, I don't want to uh, force myself to be doing more interviews right away. So I'm going to burn through the backlog here in the next few weeks. And these are, these are all excellent conversations with super cool people. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, thanks to everybody who supports this podcast. You know, I'm, I'm, you know how I am. I'm, I don't like talking about money. I don't like, I don't like the business aspect of everything <laughs> fucking everything and uh so I don't talk about it much and but the weird thing is that I noticed that when I don't talk about it the um, the Amazon revenue thing starts to go down the Patreon thing starts to go down and so and then I do talk about it and then it pops back up again and you know it turns back up so it's it's fucked up but in order to keep this podcast worthwhile I do I guess have to mention every once in a while that it is supported by you not supported by any ads you know we don't notice the absence of things so a lot of you who've just come to the podcast recently probably haven't even noticed that there are no ads except for this one um there's no Squarespace there's no underwear there's no Patagonia there's no North Face there's no none of that stuff uh not that I have anything against any of those companies uh, I just feel like there should be stuff in life that isn't paid for by companies. Uh, and so, but somebody has to pay for it. So that means it's you if you have the money. If you don't have the money, ignore what I'm saying. Someday you will and you can take care of people. But uh, if you do have some spare change, it would be great if you uh, help support the podcast. You can do that most reliably through patreon.com. You just go there, log on, you give your credit card information one time, and then just search Tangentially Speaking, and you'll find me, and you can throw in a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, two hundred bucks a month, whatever you whatever you can afford and whatever you think is appropriate. I really appreciate it. I think there are about 300 supporters on Patreon right now of this podcast, which is fantastic. Uh, most of those people are giving a buck a month, which is totally fine. 
If everybody who listened to the podcast gave a buck a month, I would never mention money again. I promise you. Other than to, like, every once in a while, just uh, squeal in gratitude. But if even one out of every ten people who is listening to my voice right now signed on to Patreon and pledged a buck a month, I would never mention money again because that would be plenty. That would be significantly more than operating expenses. But because I don't talk about money, it's weird. Listenership has pretty much doubled in the last six months. Uh, but the the revenue coming into the podcast has gone down. So there are twice as many people listening, but fewer people actually supporting the podcast. And I think that's just because I'm too fucking lazy to mention it every episode. So I mentioned it this episode, but I, I don't want to mention it. So anyway, if you have the money and you think of it and you have time, patreon.com is the best way to support the podcast. The other ways to support the podcast are by clicking through my ad for Amazon that's on my website, that Chris Ryan dot com or tangentially speaking dot com takes you to the same place click on that amazon ad bookmark where you land on amazon and then if you use that bookmark a percentage of whatever you spend at amazon will come to support the podcast which is super cool doesn't affect the pricing it just uh, is a cut out of amazon's profit and they can afford it um yeah that's it so daniel pinchback very interesting cat. Hope you enjoy this podcast. And uh, I'll be doing a, a Roma this week. This is Monday. I'll splash this up as soon as I get done with it. Uh, yeah, I'll do a Roma Wednesday or Thursday. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Roma is ranting out my ass or responding out my ass. It's essentially uh, an AMA, and Ask Me Anything episode um, where I respond to readers' emails and, and also just yammer on so that I can keep the intros to the normal conversational episodes uh, a little briefer. Okay, having said that, I'm going to shut the fuck up now. I'm going to play a, a tune by uh, a listener. This is one of the many songs that get sent to me by listeners of the podcast. Uh, it's by a guy who goes by Kojak, C-O-J-A-C-K. Uh, you can find more about him and his band, kojakandcompany.bandcamp.com or kojaksraps.bandcamp.com. I guess he does some stuff rapping himself, some stuff with a band. Uh, he also has some really good videos. I, I checked out some of the videos. They're quite well done. Uh, they're under Kojak Raps and Instagram Kojak and Company or Kojak Raps. Kojak's Raps. Sorry. Kojak's Raps. All right. So this is uh, Let's Call It Good at Kojak's Raps. Take it away. Catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Life is what you make it, I take it and make it worse. Autumn leaves are changing, I break them and make it burn. We all could be forsaken, pain don't make us learn. Or maybe I'm mistaken, someone can save the earth. I think that I think too much, smoke and I drink too much. Know that I needed love, I get drunk and ring you up. You scream, it ain't enough. Tell me I need help, I try not to bring it up. I'm afraid to face myself. 
I got questions with no answers. Habits forming patterns. I've been climbing up this ladder and I don't know where it leads. Dreams are being shattered by a lower end of standards and a whole bunch of factors that'll lead us to defeat. But I'll make it through. No thanks to you. No praises due. And everyday man with plans to make a move. Don't know how to stop. If I never hit the top, they can say I gave it everything I got. Still living, though it isn't what I planned. Don't get it, but I'm giving all I can. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How about you? How about you? Still living, though it isn't what I planned. Don't get it, but I'm giving all I can. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How about you? How about you? Ready for real life when it hits Movies lie to the kids No denying it sticks You wanted to be a hero or princess No miracles on the set Here you go, you're in debt The merry-go-round again Caught in the chain reaction No telling how it'll end Standing out on a ledger Surrounded by friends and family I'm battling with regret Safer to stay inactive But you have to leave the nest It's a life of love and loss Getting up after you fall Live it up, don't waste it Replacing it once it's gone, procrastinating, always brushing it off. Say we'll do it tomorrow, tomorrow's only a thought. Cause once tomorrow's today, we do the same and get lost in the cycle of doing nothing. Waiting to do it all, waiting for you to call, waiting for things to change. This ain't the way we planned it, but damn it, I'm good today. Still living though it isn't what I planned. Don't get it, but I'm giving all I can. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How about you? How about you? Still living though it isn't what I planned. Don't get it, but I'm giving all I can. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How about you? How about you? Still living though it isn't what I planned. Don't get it, but I'm giving all I can. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. How about you? How about you? I'm sitting with Daniel Pinchbeck. He's wearing a funky-ass suit. I spent the morning with Zach Leary, and I'm here with you, and you're wearing what looks like one of Timothy Leary's old suits. Did he wear stuff like this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if he didn't, he fucking should have. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to take a picture of you just so people can, you can go to my website, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Not only will you see 
this really cool suit that this guy's got on. Let's see here. But you will also see what we're looking at. What a beautiful place this is. Um, so we're in Topanga Canyon, my base of operations, and you're from you're living in the East Village, is that York right? York City, yeah. And you've been you grew up there. I did, that, yeah. That's your stomping ground. I lived three blocks from where uh, I lived when I was born. Really? Yeah. Where do you live? I mean, without giving your address, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't like to talk about East, it. But East Village. East Village yeah, yeah. I lived um, in the East Village for a while. Uh, I was in New York for three years in the mid-'80s, uh -huh. pre-Giuliani, back when it was grungy yeah. and, and wonderful. But I lived on, uh, what was Stanton Street, just south of, one block south of Houston. Yeah. And, like, with Avenue A, somewhere around there. Used to go up to Tompkins Square Park all the time. Up there every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a good neighborhood. Life Cafe, is that still there? Not there anymore. Yeah, I, yeah. Used, I like that Different place. Era. <laughs> and there was a bar. I used to go to Lucy's. Lucy was a Polish immigrant, uh -huh. big wig. It was, she had great right, music right, right. on I the jukebox. That's there anymore either. Pool but, table. Yeah. yeah, it's probably all gone. It's all gone. Two Boots Pizza. Two Boots is still there. Cajun pizza yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. But we didn't come here to talk about pizza, although it's been a while or since Pizzagate. I Pizzagate, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, remind me the name of your last book. How Soon Is Now. How Soon Is Now, right. And you're promoting that at the moment? Is I'm that what flogging you're doing? the hell out of it, whatever you're we can flogging it like a dead mule. It took me 10 years to figure out how to do it. Oh, really? Yeah, I really did. I had a contract that got forfeited for a very similar book years ago, and... I just kept plugging away and, and made many drafts and, you know, just, just had this idea of the book that I wanted to see in the world and, you know, it took me a really long time and a very crooked path to, yeah. to get it out there. You've, how many books have you published? Well, I've published four, but I, I actually really feel like I published three because one of them was a book that the editor kind of prodded me to do because of the success of the pr previous book and it was just a book of essays. Uh. But the three books were Breaking Open the Head, which was on psychedelic shamanism. Right. 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, that was on the prophecies of indigenous cultures like the Maya and the Hopi. And then this one, How Soon Is Now, which is looking at the ecological crisis as a kind of collective rite of passage for humanity and, and, and trying to envision kind of a blueprint or model for, for a, a, a good future direction. So you're looking at, you're sort of doing that old Chinese thing where, you know, this, the same symbol for opportunity and crisis. You're, uh -huh. you're, you're taking this crisis and looking at the opportunities that are inherent in it. Yeah. And, and what do you see? How, how, what's the best case scenario? Uh, best case scenario would be humanity uh, wakes up tomorrow morning and uh, realizes that um, we have to band together to deal with the ecological mega crisis that we've unleashed. And this requires redesigning our technical and social systems or infrastructure to be resilient, regenerative, participatory, and uh, we try to make a shift in like five to 10 years to mm. a global system based on 100% renewable energy, uh, regenerative farming practices, uh, eco cities located on higher ground. Uh, and um, yeah, we also see it as an opportunity to kind of remap our society along more like resilient local communities that are nested together in, in bioregions making you know most more power devolving to the level of local participatory democracies mm. uh different means for exchanging value we sort of need to in a way recognize that the money system we have now is corrupted you know by uh, the fact that it's controlled by private banking interests who manipulate it for their own you know benefit mm -hmm. as we saw with the 2008 crash and the aftermath right. of that so we think about we have to think about you know the, the, how we change the tools for exchanging value 
so they allow us to have a sustainable, thriving planet. Because at the moment they're forcing, you know, you know, planned obsolescence, uh, conspicuous yeah. consumption. Right. You can't they're, even they're fix driving, your shit anymore. They're driving us to to the extinction, basically. Yeah. 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 It's it's interesting how the systems are set up uh, in a way that are not they're not designed for humans. And I've got this whole theory that uh, we're embedded in superorganisms. Right. That's right. part of the book, too. Oh, sure. really? Yeah. You talk about that? i got to read this book. <laughs> damn. Oh, you sent me a PDF. I haven't looked yeah, at no it worries. yet. I just, yeah. um, but I, I want to, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, overlap between your thinking and mine. I'm, well, there's actually a whole section on love and relationships and sexuality. I, uh, I right. went to a community in, in Portugal a number of oh, times. Oh, Tamara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really am fascinated by this idea of like having a different social design for right. um, for how people interact that's non-possessive and transparent and based on authentic relationships that are mediated by a whole community infrastructure. Right. Uh, so are you are you consciously aware of the extent to which your vision of the future replicates my vision of the past? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what your vision of the past is. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of what you... Uh, Describe as the sort of um, optimal way to move into the future looks to me, and, and again, this is my, I'm aware that I have a bias in these things. I'm always thinking about prehistory and I think about it in a particular way, but you know, your sort of um, small communities, egalitarian, uh, you know, tuned into the cycles of the seasons and the earth and knowing where the food's coming from, exchange of value uh, that's not controlled by an outside entity, a third party, more of a barter system. Obviously, the sexual relationships that you're talking about uh, replicate what we discovered in, in terms of hunter-gatherers and, you know, ancient human practices. <clears throat> I imagine you're looking at... Uh, if you talk about this in the book, you talk about spirituality and religion and uh, hallucinogen, sacred plants, all these sorts of things. This is all, in many ways, a reflection of where we came from. You know, and this book I'm working on is, you know, my answer is the same as, as I, what it sounds like your answer is, which is the way to move forward is to do so with a, a great, a deep appreciation of where we came from. Yeah, it sounds like we're exactly in the same camp. I mean, um, yeah. I think that our only hope would be to understand what made these kind of indigenous and traditional cultures uh, work well, uh, and then to use our, in a sense, our capitalist system of distribution and marketing and so on and media to kind of, um, you know, replicate them with all the benefits of, you know, that we do have, you know, whether, you know, like, you know the benefits from medicine and technology and so on, but, you know, um, yeah, but but it really has to be a coherent um, movement uh, because yeah, we're absolutely, you know, you know, some people think it's already too late. I hope it's not. But you know, if we look at the fact we're losing 150 to 200 species a day, which is you know 10 percent of the Earth's remaining biodiversity every 10 to 15 years, and the oceans are 30 percent more acidic than they were 40 years ago, yeah, which is leading to all the coral reefs breaking down. I mean, you know, we have to move quickly somehow. We have to get out of our sense that we can't do anything, our sense of like disempowerment and detachment, and find a way to uh, to, to to get people to, to want to move forward. You know? Where do you think that sense of disempowerment comes from? Well, one of the ideas in the book is like I, I really like this Italian political philosopher Antonio Negri, 
and he talked. He has a concept called the production of subjectivity, that actually like we don't really think about it, but the media, you could say like the corporate media, you know, military, entertainment, industrial complex, right. is a giant indoctrination machine hmm. that basically, uh, you know, c constructs, manufactures subjectivity and consciousness on a mass level. Right. So people feel that, they, but it's also very you know cleverly constructed, so that people feel that they're you know, making decisions for themselves, or like they're rebels, or, yeah. but, but actually even that is part of the construct. Right. And, um, and, and, and that indoctrination machine makes people feel that, you know, they, they, they don't have any power, that, uh, you know, they, they have to be obedient to these authority structures, that their best thing they, they can do is consume the, the crap that is produced by the corporate system and so on. Right. So it sounds like Chomsky's manufacturing consents Parallel. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm a, yeah. I think that Chomsky is pretty much right on about almost everything. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he's just not very, he doesn't have much of a forward vision of like how, and that's, that for me was like the thing that I, was really hard to break through. I felt it was almost like, like almost like a shadow or like, or like a weight, like some, an oppression on, on a constriction, maybe on, on our capacity to have like a, a real coherent uh, vision, imagination. Uh, of what c could come next, and then begin to think about a strategic action plan to get mm. there. You know, yeah, because I mean th that's the thing that where Marx. I, I'm not an expert on Marx, but it seems like when he was describing the functioning of capitalism, he was right on. When he tried to prescribe a response to it, things got really fucking weird. And, uh, and I, yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, I think Marx is a very brilliant thinker. And actually, the the way that you know we're taught to kind of think that he was off, is also because you know there's I mean there's you know the, 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 there's still danger there for the for the paradigm for the mainstream society. Like, you know, for instance, Marx said that uh, communism would never work in an undeveloped country. That the only way the communist revolution would work is if it started in a first world country like the U.S. or England or something. Hmm. You know, so actually, his thing has never really been tried yet. Yeah, you know? I don't think it'll work. Is I think he was. He ignored the concept of scale, at least to the extent that, again, replic replicating the past. I think, for me, what I see in communism is an attempt to uh, recapture the egalitarianism of hunter-gatherer bands. But the thing is, in a hunter-gatherer band, everyone knows each other. And so there's reputational damage to hoarding or cheating or lying and stealing and all that. But when you've got a large-scale society with millions of people, other people become abstractions. You know, Dunbar's number. When you get above Dunbar's number. Yeah, but that's, I mean, but, but, but then think about how the uh, social tools can change that. You know, even like eBay, you know, it turns out to be a very efficient system. People have a trust rating or couch surfing. A friend of mine created that platform. Mm. So you can look at everybody's past exchanges with somebody mm. and whether they were like good to their word and honorable you know so so actually the the, the social technologies can you know make that stuff transparent in a, in, a, in a positive way that's an interesting idea so if we could apply that sort of eBay logarithm to politics somehow exactly uh, yeah wow. or, to, or to just you know everything every time of every type of exchange we make as human beings well, now we're getting into dark mirror territory. <laughs> Have you watched that? I've watched some of them, yeah. Did you see the one where everyone gets raided? Like yeah, they, I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, that's yeah. kind of a... Yeah, that's, I mean, obviously now idea. we're also seeing, that movie is, I mean, that TV show is, is very uh, right, you know, for the moment. 
because we're kind of seeing the shadow side of this technology, like with what happened with the election mm. and the way that um, you know the, the the extreme right figured out how to you know kind of use the uh, psychological profiling techniques of Facebook yeah. to kind of hook into people's subconscious. Uh, kind of prejudices and right. so on, and then exacerbate right. those. Right. And so that's, that's turned out to be a very dangerous uh, situation. Yeah. So do you think that this kind of an awakening can happen uh, without a major global cataclysmic event? Well, I mean, I think, I, I guess the way I looked at it was that first we have to understand what needs to happen for us to continue happily, you know, as a species and, and continue our development. Do you think so we're, we're happy species? Um, well, you know, that's, that's, that's complicated. Um, <laughs> Tell me about it. I think that yeah. uh, we're happy when we feel united with a mission. Yeah. And obviously we're happy when we feel, you know, connected to a community of love. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people don't have those two things going for them. Right. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, continue our, you know, tra trajectory, let's say. Yeah. Uh, there are things we have to do. And whether catastrophe happens or not, I have no control over, you know, but hopefully they don't have to happen. But, but also, maybe they need to, because, you know, if we look at our own past lives, like, people learn through suffering, you know, like, uh, people have to make mistakes and, you know, hurt themselves in a way that's like, it's like, that's how we learn. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if the trajectory should be continued, you know? Like all, the, all this thinking about how to preserve the current system, I, I wonder whether the current system is, uh, is something that's worth preserving. No, I don't think we should preserve the current system, but I think we should, if we awoken it, you know, we, we could then use, use, utilize the tools to you know, kind of supersede it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it would be, it would be wonderful. I, I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm, I'm trying to look for a way for this to resolve uh, with the least amount of damage, a damage, yeah. yeah, like lasting damage, especially to other species. They don't deserve this, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think the next hurricane, what was the hurricane that hit New York a few years ago? Uh, was that Sandy? Sandy, yeah. yeah. That's got to hit D.C. Like D.C. needs to flood, yeah. you know, or some, some sort of massive evidence of global warming has to wipe out. Yeah, we don't know the time center. scale, but there's absolutely no doubt that we're going to see a deepening of the whole ecological crisis, and, and it's going to take different forms, like superstorms, and yeah. you know. But um, and, and ultimately, you know, it's going to open like crisis, as you said, is also opportunity. So the question is, as things keep changing, what ideas are available for people, or what tools, or, or practices, or you know, are they going to, you know, at the moment it looks like either we're going to have no democracy, or we'd have to reconfigure and have a lot more democracy. Those seem to be the options at this point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just voted for Trump because they were so disgusted by the choice between these two horrible, corrupt candidates, and one of them would kind of perpetuate the old system. I agree. And the other one was just destroying it, and they were yeah. like, fuck it, we'll just vote for the destruction right. of the Anything system. Anything other than more of the same. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that, to me, that's the only explanation that makes sense to explain why so many Obama voters turned and voted for Trump. Yeah, well, I think Obama was a great uh, betrayer of people's hopes, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, really, really uh, was not what he uh, pretended to be. To a large extent, I agree with that. And I think in addition to that, um, he 
wouldn't have been allowed to make the kind of radical changes that he was promising. I don't think Bernie Sanders would be making radical yeah, changes. Uh, but I mean, now we're seeing radical changes being made. I mean, um, you know, for instance, if Obama had, you know, anyway, but if he had this huge volunteer and millions of people were ready yeah. to act, if he'd said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to create a civil society infrastructure, we'll have town meetings every week, we know they're profound problems in the way our society is structured, we're going to get everybody on board who's been, you know, right. wants hope and change. Mobilize that yeah, grassroots but, but movement. but instead yeah. he just abandoned them and, yeah. and let that and let that fall away. Yeah, you're and right. And then he just became a, you know, top-down managerial, uh, you know, kind of holding together the, the empire for a little while longer. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to last. So you're, you've been a left sort of a, I mean, I know the left-right dichotomy is kind of yeah. outdated. You've been a progressive thinker, uh, since conception, apparently. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that everybody is born into a context that shapes them, and that maybe, you know, it's, like, it's social circumstances and the ideas that are around them, but also, you know, maybe karma also, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, my mother was yeah. a radical book editor in the 60s. She edited right. Abby Hoffman's first book, Revolution for the Hell of It, and Black Power Books, and Free to Be You and Me. She didn't edit Steal This Book. She didn't edit, you know, she didn't edit that one. I wonder what the conversations were like at the publisher for that book. You yeah. Know? Should we really call it Steal This Book? Isn't that going to cut into our profit margin? Well, I think they did fine with that book. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so yeah. Uh, I came from a kind of you know, radical, uh, right. bohemian, artistic and background. And your, your father was, what, a journalist? He was an abstract artist. An artist, right. Peter. Right. And they were in the city as well. They were, yeah. 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 So it's interesting because, like, a lot of, you know... You say we're born into an environment that shapes us. Many times there's a rebellion against it, you know. So people, their parents are in an open marriage. They're like super into monogamy or, you know. Have you, did you go through a period where you were going to join the army and become a priest or something? No, I, I never did that. And I don't, you know, but um, I guess in a way embracing kind of uh, the mystical experience and psychedelics mm -hmm. was something that, although my mother was, you know, bohemian and from this radical perspective, she really didn't believe in anything mystical. She was very materialistic, and she was very like she she was not excited about my connection, my interest in these subjects. So, did she have experience with hallucinogens? Uh, she done LSD once in the very early '60s, and went to the zoo in Central Park, I think, and yeah. remembered it as interesting. But she never did it again. Yeah, yeah. A zoo would be a tough place to be tripping. I think <laughs> you know a lot of suffering in a zoo. <laughs> Yeah. And what's your connection? How, how did you get into, um, obviously, what, what would you call it, modern shamanism, contemporary shamanism, which is mitigated with yeah, sacred we, plants? I had a, I was working as a journalist and a editor of a small literary magazine in the, my 20s. And I was surrounded and connected to this whole media world. I started writing some pieces about the ecological situation. I wrote a feature for Esquire about the decline of the sperm count. And it turned out it was due to pesticides and, and plastics that were concentrating and hurting our endocrine system. And I began to realize that we had very serious issues, but I also began to find that when I tried to talk about them with the people in the media world that I knew, there was just no interest. And I began to realize there was an undertone of uh, cynicism and even nihilism. And when I traced that back, I found that it had to do with the, you know, everybody's scientific materialist worldview, which basically was telling everybody that in a way, nothing mattered anyway. Consciousness was simply brain-based. When, mm -hmm. when you die, it's a total ex you know, extinguishing of anything that ever could be. So in a way, life doesn't. It's just like a nothing in a way. And I began to realize that I also had that materialism and that cynicism. 
And I began to wonder, just because I'd been told that was the case, how did I know that was the case? And it was probably due to my connections to the Beats, because they had really got out in the quest for direct experience through Eastern meditation and, and ayahuasca and so on, that I was able to kind of say, okay, like I need to test this for myself. So then I started to use my journalism to get, uh, you know, pieces. I wrote a piece going to West Africa, going through Ibogo, oh, right. taking uh, with the, with the Bwini, the Gabon. Right. And that was very profound. And there were some very psychic aspects to that in terms of the, the plant spirit seeming to reveal itself to me. And things that the shamans told me that they seemed to just access from, from some other source about my life and my past. And then I just followed that path and it just kept opening up. And finally, you know, at this point, I'm completely convinced that, um, you know, their, their, their reality is, has a psychic component, you know, like a much more Jungian perspective. There's some type of collective field of consciousness that people can be tapped into. They're, I'd say other dimensions of reality, that, 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 that there are different forms of consciousness that, that exist in them that are interacting with our reality, uh, that reincarnation in some form probably exists, that this is not the end of the story, this is part of a much deeper and larger cosmic narrative. And, and that is very comforting and, and exciting to, to recognize that. So um, yeah, so, so then, you know, for me, uh, Ayahuasca is like one of the greatest teachers. I've had many profound experiences with that medicine and, and uh, so on. You started with Ibogaine. Was that your uh, first? No, I did, I did Ayahuasca once first in, in oh. a downtown ceremony. I wrote about it for the Village Voice. Uh-huh. And before that, I'd done mushrooms and LSD. Like that was the, I'd done a, few, the, a handful of times in college. And then when I had this spiritual crisis, this depression, I, I think I always remembered they were very intriguing experiences. And I always was like, wow, you know, I want to get back there someday uh, and try that again. But it was only when nothing else was working and I just mm. felt like I, I had no interest anymore in the life I was leading that, that, mm. I, that I went back and, and, and went deeper into that. Mm. Do, does it ever make you feel cautious that you're, I don't know how to phrase this, that, that you know, when I want to believe something is true, it makes me uh, feel wary because I, I recognize that I've got a hunger to believe it. You know what I mean? And you were in this state where life felt meaningless. And so you went in search of meaning and you found it. Does it ever, do you ever step back and think, hmm, wait a minute, did I just find it because I was looking for it? Or is it really there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, really am very, uh, I'm a skeptic by nature. Yeah. And so it wasn't like I would have one experience be like, oh, wow, this is it. It was like, you know, repeat experiences over a long period of time, testing those against other people's experiences, against readings, you know, like um, study. It took me a long time to uh, change my perspective, like, like you yeah. know, five-year process or right. something. Right, right. Um, and um, I believe that anybody who went through the same, put themselves through the same course would, would reach the same result. Hmm. Or they'd lose their shit. <laughs> yeah, I've I've had a lot of experiences with hallucinogens, so I'm I'm assuming a skeptical pose, but I don't really uh, feel it. I've had I, I don't know if you've had this sort of thing. Some, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about you know I think the psychedelics that open you to a deeper understanding that there's you know these psychic currents to reality, like synchronicity, like Carl Jung yeah, wrote about, and F. Yeah. David Pete wrote 
physicist wrote that book, Synchronicity, A Bridge Between Mind and Matter. Mm, I don't yeah, know that one. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I've read a know, lot of Jung. Yeah, and then, and then quantum physics, you know, like people yeah. like Def David Pete or the holog holographic universe theory. Right. It really does support this is all somehow like a manifestation or projection of, of a consciousness that is, uh, you know, exploring its own infinite creative potential, you know, through all of us. And, and we're almost the necessary ground for consciousness to discover itself, to learn about what it, what it is capable of and so on. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes perfect sense to me. I've had a lot of uh, very interesting experiences along these lines of, of revealing other dimensions or another realm of connectivity somehow that, that isn't readily apparent. I've had these experiences around um, psychedelics, but not while I was taking them. In two cases, the two most memorable cases, the, the event happened um, before, a couple of hours before. Sure. And in one case with peyote, I didn't even know I was going to be taking peyote yeah. that night. I've had those experiences too. So there's like a like a field, a psychic field, yeah. yeah. Which then opens up really fascinating questions about time, you know, like uh, space time. Like how can you have these yeah. premonitions? Or uh, are you familiar with Dean Radin's oh, yeah, research? Yeah. I interviewed him in the in the book, uh, the film that I made, uh, 2012, Time for, Time for Change. Right. And I covered him in the 2012 book also. I, I really find him very powerful, very interesting because yeah. he's into this this stuff with the time. How how? Yeah. It, correct me if I'm describing this wrong. It's been years since I read it, but he did these studies where I think he he hooked people up to machines that measured physiological reactions in nanoseconds, and then he had uh, images flashing on computer screens, and the images were randomized by the computer. Some of the images, most of the images were comforting kittens and children and flowers. And then every once in a while there was an image of a snarling wolf or a striking yeah. rattlesnake or something. And he found that people responded physiologically before they saw the image. Yeah, I mean, there's that study. I can't remember if that was done by him or not, but another one that I know that he was involved with was the Global Consciousness Project. Is that with the random, random number, number generators? generators uh, these uh, eggs yeah, that yeah. put around the planet. Right, and, and they like found before 9-11. Yeah, exactly, they, yeah. they found that they would go into like, you know, uh, sort of different patterns away from just random variation. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would peak after a major world event, but the uh, change in the pattern would start like several hours, you know, before 9-11 happened, for instance. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, very Almost as if there's like strange, an inchoate intuitive uh, foretelling, for, for, foreknowledge of what's going to happen. On a global level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very strange. And, um, Man. Yeah, but that's, you know, uh, I'm very interested in these ideas um, from like Telhard de Chardon, who wrote about the newosphere. Uh. This idea that maybe like, when we think about, you know, this, this once again could give us some hope, I think, that things might work out in a positive sense. Like, feels like there's this just this, you know, powerful evolutionary trajectory, like humanity meshed the world together through trade networks, you know, capitalism may ultimately be seen as this like, you know, kind of primitive uh, force, like a transitional system that pulled the world all together into one global system. And then on top of that, we've now learned <clears throat> the communications system 
which is like the nervous system, you know, almost like a, like almost like a fetus developing its brain, right? Right. And you know, maybe now we're in like the birth canal, and what's being pushed out is kind of like the higher mind of our species, like our capacity to use this whole switchboard of information to spread the best ideas and the yeah. best best techniques, the ones that are going to help the most. Well, you know, that's one of the things that, that gives me the most uh, optimism about the, the potential paths in the, into the future is, and I don't mean to be tooting my own horn here, but a podcast is an amazing thing. Yeah. You know, that you and I can have this conversation with no filtering, no company looking over our shoulders. I go home, push a few buttons, and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people listen to it. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's yeah. never happened it's before. It's extraordinary, exactly. Um, it's, it's almost like the, you know, the printing press, just like on a exponentially more and, powerful. And as I write about in the How Soon Is Now, there's, I think there's an intrinsic connection between the predominant form of media and the uh, ultimately the political and social organization. Hmm. So like you would never have had an empire like Rome until you had a writing, a code of laws that could be spread so the whole thing could be codified. You could never have had like um, a modern nation state without the printing press because you have to get enough information so everybody can vote together even every few years and you know and now the internet to me almost inexorably points towards a totally new way for humans to, uh, to, to, to you know, share, coordinate power, coordinate resources in a society. You know, so, so you know, it doesn't, it, it's not surprising that it hasn't happened yet. It's only been 20, 30 years that we've had this thing. Although it has happened. I mean, and there are certain indications. I mean, it happened in, in local, you know, small examples. But I was reading about um, Kickstarter. What was the book I was reading? Uh, uh, Future Perfect. Okay. You heard of that book? Sounds a little familiar. I forget the name of the author. Yeah. He's like a Silicon Valley, yeah. you know, smart guy thinker. Um, Kevin Johnson, maybe? Okay. Um, anyway, he was talking about how within three years of its founding, Kickstarter was delivering more funding to artists than the NEA. Yeah. And that's what two hundred fifty million dollars yeah, or something yeah. within no, three years, yeah, and no, it's I mean, doubling every sure, year. Sure, sure. I mean, we can see all these kind of examples of. Uh, I mean, Wikipedia is obviously incredible. Yeah. Like just people giving, yeah, you know, loving the just joy of being able to share ideas and information and so on. Yeah. But, you know, what we don't see yet is how this could work, as a uh, you know, orchestrated, tech you know technology for dealing with the fact that we're annihilating our ecosystems, you know, or yeah. the fact that there's such an inequality of wealth and power that it is so totally ludicrous. I mean, there's no tangible, physical reason why somebody who takes care of children should make exponentially less than somebody who manipulates, you know, the, the value of, of currencies in the third world for their own benefit. In, in fact, in a healthy society, you might want to reward the person who works with children sure. or the elderly more for doing like hard work and taking care of people and so on. What do you think about a guaranteed minimum income? I think something like that is necessary, but I think ultimately it's 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 going to be it's going to require a deeper transformation of the money system because money, as an instrument, is part of the problem. It's uh, you know there's Bernard Leotard who I talk about in, in my book How Soon Is It Now as an economist who wrote a book called The Future of Money, and he compares uh, currency systems throughout history, and there's yin and yang uh, currencies, he says, mm. like ones that support cooperative and feminine uh, community values, and ones that are purely like masculine, aggressive, you know, uh, you know, 
based that, that, that forced competition and hoarding and artificial scarcity. How does that, how would a yin, a yin currency work? What would it look like? Well, uh, I mean, one idea is like, you know, he points to one in uh, Japan called the Furyo Kipo, which is called, the, stands for, it means caring relationship ticket. And that's the one that's used for like, you know, like let's say you take care of like uh, an elderly person in your area, then you get some of that, you know, uh, ticket that you can then use for, you know, your, 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 you know, family, a distant place away to be taken care of by somebody when they need to be. Oh, I see. Another example would be uh, what he talks about, a demurrage charge. So it's a currency that was used in the Middle Ages in Egypt that loses value the longer you hold on to it. Ah. So there's no incentive to hoard it. Instead, you want to you share it and spread it. So he has an idea that we would have a negative interest currency uh, that would uh, on, a, on a global uh, scale for trading, hmm. and then we might have like, like this guy Tom Greco uh, wrote a book called "The End of Money and the Future of Civilization." So he talks about local exchange trading systems, where a group of like manufacturers and service providers get together and issue zero interest loans to help other businesses uh, support themselves. All right. So yeah, there's a whole lot of potential along those lines, and we're seeing. You know, with Bitcoin, that you really can have like uh, you know a, a scalable alternative to the monetary system, and in a strange way, you can even think that Bitcoin is is actually backed by something more tangible than the dollar, because it's backed by mathematical equations. At least there are only a limited amount that can only be like twenty three million bitcoins ever. Mm. Um, you know, whereas what is the dollar backed by at this point? Yeah. Guns, you know. Yeah, yeah, guns and mass delusion. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm conscious of the fact that you're you're sick and you've got people I'm coming here. I'm not sick at all. I just started getting stuffed up. Oh, is it allergies? Yeah, allergies. Oh, I thought yeah, you had yeah. a cold from no, traveling no, or whatever. No, allergies. It's constantly. I'm feeling, when I travel, I feel like I'm like torturing that. you here. No, no, it's just, don't worry about it. That's just the way it is. Oh, uh, all right. Yeah. Um, so when did, when did this book come out? Uh, it just came out like three weeks ago. Oh, okay. So yeah. you're really hitting it hard right now. Yeah, I mean, I you know, Good. as I said, I spent so long on it. I really believe the ideas in it are important, and it's you know been difficult to find any uh, you know outlet in the mainstream media. Mm. So I didn't get a review of the Times, which really depressed me and disappointed me. I haven't gotten you know other types of consideration. So yeah, for me, avenues like this one are, are very important at this point yeah. uh, to get to get the ideas out to the to yeah. people and hopefully get them to read the book. Yeah, and and I think my audience is very keyed into these kind of issues you know this is something the kind of stuff that we talk about a lot on the podcast so people go out and get this book and some of daniel's earlier books you're uh you know uh dennis mckenna yeah of course yeah yeah, yeah. and i saw i was looking up some of your stuff earlier you wrote about did you ever meet terrence i met him once uh, yeah 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 i had dennis on the podcast he's i really enjoyed him. oh he's I great for sure only met him that one time yeah. But you've so I wanted to ask you about the ibogaine experience because um, I I went down to the clinic in Tijuana. I don't know if you know those folks. Uh, yeah, I, I did it in uh, yeah I think it was Tijuana also or uh, one of the other northern towns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But your first experience was in Gabon. Gabon, yeah. yeah. How how did that? How did you put that together? Uh, through the internet, I found somebody who was an ethnobotanist who'd been uh. studying uh, the tribal people down there and their, right. their medicines. And he was inviting, you know, trying to trying to make a living doing these tours. Oh, okay. So I went down, but he'd only bring. Actually, turned out that he'd hardly done it. He just brought one other person. It had been a disaster. So we uh -huh. went and we went to this uh, tribal village, 
uh, out in the hinterlands of Gabon, and the shaman called himself the king, uh, and he was very belligerent, and he tried to like demand more money from us even while he was tripping and yeah. so on. But meanwhile, his, you know, meanwhile, the actual experience under the medicine was uh, amazing. It had all these different phases that they recognized. Like, for the first part, they have you sit in front of a mirror and you see like eyes open, like visual hallucinations in the mirror. Then they had us lie down, and there was like uh, hours and hours where I was going through like early childhood memories, and they were coming back, uh, like almost like holographic sense memories, like the feeling, the 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 emotion, like in, mm. in a very clear way. And it was almost like being given a guided tour of, of, of my past mm. uh, and, and how it had impacted me. Who else was with you? It was just me and, and Dan Lieberman, uh, the guide, and uh, one other woman. An African or a No, she was Western a Western woman, yeah. Uh, but then we were with all Africans otherwise. Right. And did the fact that you were in Africa affect the experience in a positive, negative, you must have felt awkward anyway. I mean, you're in this culture, you don't speak the language. I've never really felt that awkward when I'm in tribal cultures. I actually feel, mm. they feel very, like, homey to me. Mm. Like, um, just you really have this instant sense of how interconnected everybody is. And I remember right. being there and watching, like, women breastfeeding each other's children. And yeah. they had us, like, just sleeping on these, like, mattresses on the ground. And, like, kids would come and, like, sleep next to us. People would come and go through the whole night. It was, you know, all of that I found really beautiful. And this, uh, like, like, really suggests such a different way that, that people could be together. Right. Right. Well, that's a good point. It's comforting. And, yeah, I can see how it would feel like home. Uh, and so you, how long did the experience last? Uh, it was like 25 hours, something like that. Wow. 2025. And then could you process it with the other Westerners, or is it a very isolated, like, individualistic thing? Uh, well, they actually really wanted me to speak my visions, which I had a hard time doing. For them, like, visions you have might be impossible, uh, might, be, might be important for the whole uh, community. Ah. Uh, and uh, the king was kind of mad at me because I wasn't really speaking. And uh, Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it took a while to, to, to process and to integrate, but it was a life-changing experience. How was yours? I haven't done. I, oh, okay. I, I visited the clinic, but okay. I, I didn't yeah. do the, the yeah. ibogaine. I, the uh, second time I did it with uh, with a friend who was actually dealing with a heroin problem, uh-huh. uh, and he invited me. He paid for me to come and, and do it with him. Um, it was, uh, or maybe they gave, they gave it to me for free. I can't remember. Uh, it was quite different. Uh, a lot of the experience, which I wrote about in the 2012 book, was of a voice speaking directly in my head. I was like answering questions. It was almost like I was being given a. Uh, journalistic uh, interview with uh, Mr. Iboga. And so I would ask, like, uh, so Iboga, like, what are you anyway? And the voice would shout, primordial wisdom teacher of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Were you taking notes? Or you... Yeah, I did actually take notes. Really? And uh, apparently my friend Stephen also had the experience at one point in his trip where he was asking questions of Iboga, and he was like, Iboga, you know, I really want to help humanity. I want to, like, help, you know, affect the world positively. What do I do? And the voice shouted back at him, clean up your room. <laughs> <laughs> I, have you ever heard of Tanya Lerman? No. She teaches at Stanford. She's a cultural anthropologist and a psychologist. She did studies of, uh, I guess, what we would call schizophrenics, right? People who hear voices. And what she found was that in different cultures, the voices say different things, huh. sort of culture-specific. That makes sense. So in America, which, you know, obviously a very violent, uh-huh. fearful society, the voices tend to tell people to hurt themselves, oh, well. and, you know, it's, it's more violent. But in India, 
people who hear voices, the voices generally tell them to clean up the house and, you know, don't forget to make dinner and go wow. shopping. They're just sort of helpful. So there's not this like, oh, my God, I'm losing my mind. It's like, oh, the helpful little voice telling That's me. That's super interesting. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever look at that book, Julian James's book? Yeah, by Carol Mudd. Yeah, I did. I wrote a paper on that book in grad school, actually. Yeah, I I didn't. Well, we won't get into that book. No, I'm sure nobody has read it who's listening to us right now. Uh, but it's an interesting book. He basically argues that until uh, just five or six thousand years ago, I think that people were being directed by voices because of the structure of the brain. Yeah, yeah. It, it, very interesting book. Very provocative. Um, anyway, listen, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up because I know Go people are coming and, yeah, and you need great. a chance to rest. Yeah. But let's do it again sometime because awesome. there's a lot that we can talk about. Fun. You ever met um, Stanley Krippner, by the way? I probably have. He's written somewhere. a lot yeah, on shamanism yeah, and yeah, psychedelics. Yeah. He's He was like my mentor in oh, grad right school. He's awesome. a very good friend. Very cool. And Wade Davis? Yeah, uh, I've never met Wade, but I'm a huge Oh, his yeah. work is amazing. I, I went up and interviewed him uh, a couple months ago in Vancouver. Oh, that's awesome. Really cool guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay, I'm going to let you go. Cool. Uh, how soon is now? Oh, yeah, how soon is now? I guess how soon is now. Info. I also have my own little weekly podcast. That I've been uh, doing. Oh, good. Okay. How soon is now? What's it called? How soon is now? Is it called How soon is yeah, now? And, okay. Uh, Pinchbeck.io, and you know, I got all that Facebook. Google the motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. All motherfucker. right. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> You still here? I guess you enjoyed that conversation. Well, so did I. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. You can also buy stuff through Amazon.com. Just go to ChrisRyanPhD.com or TangentiallySpeaking.com, same place, different route, and you'll see an Amazon ad on the right uh, banner. Click on that, bookmark the landing site, use that for Amazon, and anywhere between 4 and 8% of what you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra expense to you or your loved ones. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun, and you can check them out at Basin and Range band.com if you want to talk about the podcast you can go to reddit where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast uh, i drop in and answer questions post photos uh whatever pretty cool community there and uh if you want to get some t-shirts we have the civilized to death shirts sex at dawn shirts tangentially speaking shirts they're all in my mom's garage she will get them out to you in a jiffy julie my mom is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet so you can find those on my website that chris ryan chris ryan phd.com tangentially speaking.com whatever you'll find them just look in the store there if you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer that sure design t-shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent 
me a bunch of shirts uh, at an extreme discount to uh, help us out. And we've been working with them ever since. Since Bennett died, the people who took over shirtdesigntshirts.com have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So that's pretty cool. And as a way to thank them, make sure you use the discount code Chris when you order anything from them so that they know that they're getting some business coming from this podcast. That's SureDesignTshirts.com. They've got all sorts of stuff, yoga pants and jewelry and beautiful stuff, all made from this really nice soft cotton. The discount code is Chris. Use the discount code Chris, C-H-R-I-S, and you'll get 10% off. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at carcyblanton.com she performed this little ditty especially for us sounds like she was sitting in her garage you can hear the birds chirping the song is called smoke alarm and it's a reminder to live now because you're gonna die one day this is for you guys bennett and justin miss you he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say It's a big deal if you want to be free. Say what you want to feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.